Welcome to Reconquest on the Crusade Premium Channel, part of the Veritas Radio Network. I'm Brother Andre Marie coming to you from St. Benedict Center in Richmond, New Hampshire. Our websites are catholicism.org and reconquest.net. My email address is bam at catholicism.org. That's bam at catholicism.org. If you'd like to write me with a brief suggestion, comment, or question, you can find me on social media. I'm on Twitter at brother underscore Andre, and I'm easily found on Facebook. Just search for Brother Andre Marie on Facebook, and you will find me. This is episode number 223, and we're calling it, Are There Any Problems with Capitalism? And my guest is Dr. E. Michael Jones. Dr. Jones is the founder and the publisher of Culture Wars magazine. He's the author of numerous books, including the eagerly anticipated Logos Rising, which I understand will be available in early April. Uh, More directly to the point for this interview, he's also the author of Barren Metal, A History of Capitalism as the Conflict Between Labor and Usury. At over 1,400 pages, it is an exhaustive treatment of its subject. By the way, to get the book, you can go to culturewars.com to order it. And you can also, while you're there, order other books of Dr. Jones and other authors, uh, including David Wemhoff, David Wemhoff, whom I've recently interviewed again, and um, also the book on converts, on American converts, The Mississippi Flows into the Tiber, uh, by uh, the the English gentleman that I've also authored um, recently, um, and uh, the whose whose name presently escapes me. I apologize. John Beaumont. John Beaumont. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Jones. John Beaumont. Okay, I myself, by the way, am a subscriber uh, to Culture Wars magazine, and you can. Subscribe to that while you're at culturewars.com. I find the magazine uh, one of the most uh, intellectually stimulating reads around, and I look forward to getting it every month. Now, modernity offers us two competing materialist economic systems, which have, uh, much to the surprise, I'm sure, of many of, of the opposite school's adherents, a surprising amount in common with each other. Capitalism and socialism is what I'm speaking of here. According to my guest, both systems are evil. Both systems have have serious moral flaws. The only alternative to these, in his mind, uh, is the Catholic vision of the economy that was implemented in Europe in pre-capitalist times. So without any further ado, I'll bring on Dr. Jones. Good evening, Dr. Jones. Good evening, brother. Good to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it very much. Um, so I know that you've written. Uh, I know that that um, you've written this fourteen hundred page book on on capitalism, and it's mostly an historical approach. Um, but we need to speak of the, the 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 nature of what it is we're talking about here, and not and not just before we get into any of the sort of the stories right. that that epitomize uh, this thing. So can we? And, and I realize too that entire books have been written to define capitalism, but can we begin with a non-book length definition, a simple definition of capitalism? Yes, yes, we can. Capitalism is state-sponsored usury, and it is also uh, the systematic appropriation of all surplus labor. So the two key issues are labor and usury, which is the they're the two poles that uh, I establish in my book. Uh, and uh, capitalism uh, begins 
and and what I was going to say is that the one is a function of the other. In other words, the instrument for the appropriation of all surplus labor is usury. This is how the oligarchs basically suck the labor out of the out of the economy, the product of the labor out of the economy by getting people in debt. And then they have to pay interest on the debt. And that takes away all of the uh, the gains that you get from labor. Now, so, w- w- when you, when you- let, let me just make one more clarification here. Surplus. Okay. Let me just explain what surplus labor is. I assume everybody knows what usury is. Uh, um, surplus labor uh, it, it comes about when uh, you add labor to nature. So an example would be if you have a pound of flour, uh, it has a certain value. If you apply human labor to that and create uh, bread out of it, you've increased the value largely because you can eat bread and you can't eat flour. So it's immediately usable. Uh, the difference between the value of the flour and the value of the bread is surplus labor. And that the only real addition, I know you put water and salt or whatever in yeast and all that other type of stuff. Okay. But, but the point here, the main addition to all this t- is labor. Mm-hmm. And now Karl Marx uh, said that labor is the source of all value. Uh, that's true. Okay. And uh, not only did he say it, Adam Smith said it. And John Locke said it. So you have the opposite poles here in the English economic uh, uh, system uh, saying the same thing. And also Pope John Paul II said the same thing in Laborum Exercens. So we need to uh, eliminate that from the discussion. Yes, Karl Marx said it. Uh, Yes, he failed. He failed in what he was doing because he tried to come up with a price for a product based on the amount of labor that goes into it. And you cannot do that. You can only come up with a price in a marketplace uh, because someone has to be able want to buy it. You have to enter into a negotiation. And then once you establish the right price, then you have the sale. And that's the price. So you can't establish the price independently of a marketplace. And that was the error that Karl Marx got involved in. But he was right when he said that labor is the source of all value. That's true. And as I said, other people have said it as well. I think you give the example, either either you give the example or somebody who was reviewing your book gave the example that the... Um that you can make you can make wine in Iceland and put in a whole lot of labor to get wine in in this sort of hostile climate, but then you can have you know wine that's in Portugal or Calabria or someplace like that where they where they actually have a good wine growing um, climate, and you're going to put a lot of lot less labor into it, but you're going to get m- better wine or more wine, and you, you right. can't so you can't just charge the amount based purely upon the labor. No, no, and th- and that's another reason why we have trade in this world. Because uh, they're good at cod in Iceland, but they're not good at wine. So, you know, trade the cod for the wine. Uh, um, Ricardo goes into this in an exaggerated fashion to justify free trade, which it should not be used to justify. But, I mean, basically, the principle is there. And Pesh says that uh, God, God intended commerce because he didn't distribute resources equally on this earth. Uh-huh. And so some people have something that's... Uh, ver- easily cr- made or easily available and other places in the world it's not available at all and so they have, they have other things and this is an argument for commerce but the, the, the principle still holds true the only way you get wine is through human labor mm-hmm. you know now- the only way you get grapes is through human labor and, and um, uh, John Locke said 
even if there's a deer in the forest, uh, you have to kill it. And then you have to skin it, and then you have to cook it. So, in other words, even if it's in nature, uh, all by itself, simply put there by God, you still have to use human human labor to make it accessible to human beings. Now, when you when you define uh, when you define capitalism as state sponsored usury, I understand you're quoting somebody who you've just referred to. That would be the Jesuit, the German Jesuit Heinrich Pesch, right? Right. Yes. This every, everything in Baron Metal. Uh, the whole theoretical foundation is Heinrich Pesch's Lehrbuch der Nationalökonomie. And for years in Culture Wars and Fidelity magazine, which was its predator, we used to publish articles by Rupert Ederer, who was the man who basically preserved Pesch for posterity. And translated him into English. And translated him into English, and that, uh, with that act, made him completely inaccessible to <laughs> any audience in the world. He handed it over to Mellon Press, and Mellon Press came out with a 10-volume uh, version of Pesh that will cost you $1,300 to mm -hmm. buy. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I realized uh, maybe I better step in here and make Pesh accessible in the way that uh, Rupert intended but did not do. And so I based this book on the thinking of Heinrich Pesh. Now, that's not just Pesh. If you read the Lehrbuch der Nationalökonomie, He's doing a survey of all of German economic thought uh, before World War One. Now, Germany was the powerhouse of economic thinking, and it was the, the basis for not only German Catholic economic thought, but Catholic economic thought, period. Uh, it made it, we call what we call Catholic social teaching made its entry into <clears throat> human consciousness and I believe it was 1893 with the publication of Rerum Novarum. But uh, Rerum Novarum was, uh, uh, the great Pope uh, Leo XIII uh, wrote that, one of the greatest intellectuals in the history of the Catholic Church, by the way, uh, and a great promoter of St. Thomas Aquinas. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the, uh, the, the source of this was largely German economics. So this is uh, Bishop Kettler, right? Was, was one Bishop von Kettler was, was a major source of uh, Rerum Navarum. Now, Bishop von Kettler <clears throat> was one of the first Catholics uh, to understand what was called the worker uh, question at that point. Uh, he wrote a book, uh, and it, it, what is the uh, Arbeiter, Das Christentum und die Arbeiterfrage. It's never been translated into uh, English, but uh, basically surveying what it was like in Mainz during the middle of the 19th century. His his book came out in the same year that Das Kapital came out, or right around the same time. So you have basically Karl Marx and Bishop von Kettler both focused on the prime issue of that day, which is basically how are we going to treat the worker? Mm -hmm. Now, we, we both they would both agree that labor is the source of all value. And here you have a situation where you're treating labor as if it's a commodity, like any other commodity, and these workers go into the workforce, and then they bid each other down. It's a race to the bottom. And then finally, they bid the wages so low that they're below subsistence level. And this led to the rise of communism. Uh, the, 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 you can't ignore a situation this grave. 
it is the most the most it is the basis of economic life and you're ignoring it and you're allowing this ruthless exploitation of the worker who is the source of all value whose work is the source of all value and something had to give and something did give and we communism was the uh, result of it but pesh uh, pesh's influence on the church led to uh, uh rerum novarum and then more importantly uh pesh's protege Oswald Nell Bruning was instrumental in the writing of Quadragesimo Anno, which appeared 40 years later as the sequel to Rerum Navarum. Now, now there's a, there's a, uh, there's a, a thinker named Thomas Stork, um, who wrote an article that I recently read, who s- attempts to define capitalism himself, and he talks, he goes through several different definitions of it, and one of the definitions that he gives is sort of based upon Quadragesimo Anno, and he refers to it as that economic system uh, in which were provided, uh, let's see, it's an awkward translation that he's got, uh, basically, it's this, essentially, it's the separation of ownership from work, the separation of ownership from work. That's what he thinks is the essence of capitalism. What do you think of that? <clears throat> I, uh, now, now, we're getting into capital here. Okay? Yeah. And, and I think that uh, Karl Marx was a materialist, and as a materialist, he made a fundamental mistake in saying that capital was evil. Mm-hmm. It's like saying hammers are evil. It's capital is an instrument. It's not a, 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 a sin. The usury is always sinful. It's always evil. And Karl Marx completely ignored usury. It's not it, it, because he's a materialist. So he completely ignored one of the, the, the fundamental problem of all of economic history. So I would say uh, the separation of ownership um, from work uh, is probably necessary if you want to have uh, any type of sophisticated division of labor. Mm-hmm. It is not immoral. It is immoral. In other words, if you have money and you buy stock in a company, you basically become a, a partial owner of that company. And you deserve a return on one condition, and the condition is if you share risk. You share risk. Okay. So, and and this gets into the definition of usury, because you, you said you assume we all know what usury is. I don't know that we all do. Um, and it's defined a different way. Some people define it as any interest on a loan. Some people define it as interest on uh, on non-productive loans. Uh, I've heard yeah. you speak uh, of it. did that, by the way, and he was wrong. Okay, and, and and people like Tom Woods rejoice when people like Belloc make mistakes like that. Tom Woods rejoiced over that uh, that fact. He was wrong. Uh, and uh, if we get to the church's teaching, it is vix pervenit. Type it into your Google search engine or another search engine. And <clears throat> Benedict the Fourteenth, seventeen forty-five, and he defined uh, any interest on the loan is usurious. So there's a problem with the loan itself. And what is the problem with the loan? There is no shared risk in a loan. That's the problem. So if you don't share the risk, you don't deserve a return on your investment. It's that simple. If you do share the risk, then you deserve whatever you can get in a sense. I mean, then you're in a different realm, but you deserve a return on your investment. So, so this this is in also in scripture. The, remember the, the the talents. Sure, the parable the master, of talents. The master distributes the talents. Now, what is he saying? A lot of people say, "Oh, this is a justification for banking," 
be, or, uh, because the one put, put it in the bank or something like that, or the master said, you could have put it in the bank and got interest on your return. No, that's not what this is about. This is about risk. And risk in the spiritual life and risk in the economic life are the same thing. No, if you don't risk, you don't deserve a return. And the guy who did risk got a hundredfold return, and the guy who didn't risk got nothing and got berated by uh, our, our, by the master. So risk uh, is essential uh, if you if if you're talking about a just economic system. So, so to be specific, let's say let's uh, focus right now on the crisis we're going to have right now. So I every Saturday morning after mass, I gather with my friends at a Mexican restaurant and we have breakfast together and we talk things over. OK, and so the same waitress comes every day, every Saturday, takes our order. Well, now this governor of Indiana has closed all restaurants. Now, this man, I don't know who he is. I've never met him. But let's assume that uh, he has a mortgage on that building. Okay, now he has no income in now at all. But if he's got a mortgage, he's got to make a mortgage payment. And if he doesn't make the mortgage payment, he will lose that restaurant. Yeah. That's what I mean by no shared risk. He's not sharing the risk. That's the problem with with usury. So the now, inv the investor doesn't share the the investor is sharing risk. So the stockholder absolutely. is sharing risk whereas That's the right. money lender isn't. That's right. And that's the big difference between. So sharing risk, investing in stock. And to get back to your original question, well, that is a separation of ownership from labor. You're right. It is. But I don't see it as immoral. Mm -hmm. I think that if the investor shares the risk, then he deserves a return on his investment because he's providing capital to expand the business. And that expansion of business will allow for the employment of workers who should be paid a decent wage or, a, uh, as we say in Catholic teaching a family wage. Mm -hmm. I but think there's nothing intrinsically wrong with separating ownership from uh, labor. I think Stork had in mind the, the, the idea that several of the popes had spoken of that, that uh, private ownership should be as widely diffused as possible <laughs> and not just and that, concentrated that, into the hands of a few. That's, that's true. That's good. But then, but but we live in a sophisticated economy where if if every man's going to be his own uh, employer, uh, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Yeah. Build a seven forty seven in your backyard? Yeah, it's no. I, yeah, I understand. No, it's not it's that. not always possible. And 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 Stork actually acknowledges that it's that, that it's not always possible. He just he yeah. just says that when it becomes the the dominant model for this relationship between ownership and labor. Um, when they're completely separated, you get that you get the divorce that uh, that makes for this sort of uh, manipulation that we see in in well present day econ economics. Well, look, the the distortion in present day economy is because of usury, not because of the separation of labor uh, and uh, and investment and ownership. Usury has concentrated wealth into fewer and fewer hands over the past 40 years. And we are in a terrible situation because the users are running this country. They have so much money, they bought, they bought up the entire Republican Party. Three rich Jews, Sheldon Adelson, Bernard Marcus, and Paul Singer control the foreign policy of the United States of America because of their wealth. This is an intolerable situation, mm -hmm. intolerable, mm -hmm. okay? And it's not because of uh, labor being separated from from uh, uh, ownership. It's because of usury, pure and simple. And and the problem here is that uh, 
we uh, let, let's put it this way. We solve this problem. I don't mean we, meaning America, solved this problem. And there's one man in particular who solved this problem, and his name was Henry Ford. And Henry Ford solved the problem by raising wages. And this is, I, I get into this argument, I've had back and forth with the distributists, the followers of Belloc and, and Chester, and who want to have little, little cottage industries in their backyard. And I said, no, it's not going to work in any sophisticated economy. The criterion for justice is the wage. And we live in a world, whether you like it or not, you know, where most people earn wages. And so the wage becomes the criterion of justice in any society. And America solved that problem by raising wages. Now, Henry Ford was no saint. I mean, he, he employed goons, ex-boxers to beat up Walter Ruther and people like that. Uh, but he did raise wages and he saw that family, a family wage was important intuitively. So he didn't like unions, but he did raise wages. And then finally his grandson in 47, that uh, momentous moment where basically Henry's grandson uh, signed a deal with the UAW. And this inaugurated the beginning of the era of prosperity uh, in post-World War II America. That prosperity was due, was due primarily to high wages. And the high wages were due primarily to Quadragesimo Anno and that influence that, that spread throughout the United States. This was the high point of Catholic influence on America through things like the Legion of Decency, but high wages were also part of that. Catholics were members of unions. The unions guaranteed high wages, and that meant prosperity for everyone. Okay, so now you you when you when I asked you to define capitalism, you gave me two definitions. One uh, was the one from Heinrich Pesch that it's state sponsored. No, they're use. both from Heinrich Pesch. They're both okay. So when you say the systematic appropriation of all surplus labor, can you explain what that means? Can you explain that a little bit more? So um, surplus labor. Uh, when you say so, we know what surplus labor is, right? Yeah. Well, you you explained surplus labor as you know adding labor to nature and and increasing the value of the raw materials that you started with. Right. Okay. So, what is the the proper response to uh, surplus labor? What is the proper response? A proportionate wage. Okay. Okay, and that means if there's an increase in productivity you increase wages. Well, we have had the opposite of that. Okay? And the beginning was in the 70s. The 70s were a crucial period here. Uh, the 70s is when, first of all, abortion is introduced in 1973, and at that point, wages stopped going up. When wages stop going up, you have to give the illusion that people have money, and how do you do that? Well, you issue the credit card. So the credit card abortion and the stagnation of wages all started around the same time. Uh, what we had was a peculiar uh, phenomenon then called stagflation, which was a type of inflation that didn't seem following the normal pattern. And so the oligarchs got upset and they yanked the chain of Jimmy Carter, who uh, set out to be a reformer and Jimmy Carter wanted to get reelected. And so in 1978, he appointed Paul Volcker as head of the Federal Reserve System. And Paul Volcker then killed the economy. 
And how did he kill the economy? Through usury. Okay, he raised interest rates on T-bills to 19%. Now, no one, remember what I said about risk? Yes. No one in his right mind is going to invest in a company when you can get 19% risk-free from the government. And so basically what uh, St. Bernardine of Siena said this, usury kills charity and it kills business too. And this is how it kills business. Nobody's going to risk their money when they could get 19% from the government. And so uh, in addition to that, in order to do that, okay, the banks are now lending at exorbitant rates. When I bought my house, I had to pay 10% on my mortgage. Well, because the rates were so high. That's an outrageous. Unfortunately, it was a very cheap house. But, I mean, it was outrageous to pay that much money. So what you did, in a sense, uh, in order to do that, you had to strike down usury laws across the United States of America, which is exactly what happened in the early 80s. And as a result of that, the usurers took control of the economy, and it led to the reign, as I said, of those three rich Jews now. Mm-hmm. The usurer had no hindrance now. He could collect money hand over fist. You had the same going at the same going on at the same time. You had the rise of gambling, which is another form of uh, money manipulation. And as a result, the wealth was concentrated into fewer and fewer hands till the reach, we reached the point where we are today, where it's strangling the economy. Now, one protest movement along the way against that was Occupy Wall Street. And I went to Occupy Wall Street and I walked around the crowds there with never no crowds anymore. We're not allowed to do that anymore. But, uh, <laughs> they were there. And uh, it was basically 20 year olds holding up little signs. And the little sign said, I'm $50,000 in debt. And all I can get is an unpaid internship. Here we are. We're back at the same thing where we started this program. You have debt on the one hand and no low wages or no wages in this instance on the other. You as as a as a an as a people, we have to choose one system or the other. Either we value labor or we value usury. Either labor is the source of all value, or we go to Jewish economics. And the best exponent of that is Shylock. And this is where I got the title of my book from Shylock um, in in The Merchant of Venice. Shylock, when Shylock brags to Antonio, my ducats can copulate faster than Laban's ewes and rams. Well, if your ducats can copulate, you don't need labor, do you? Of course, he's referring to, Shakespeare here is referring to Aristotle. Aristotle said money was sterile, and Aristotle was right. Money cannot copulate. As Aquinas said, you can put two coins in a drawer and you come back six weeks later and all you have are two coins. You put two mice in a drawer and you got plenty of mice. So money cannot copulate. But you can have the illusion that it copulates. And what gives you that illusion is usury, compound interest. And this is what this is what uh, we see with um uh, Dante taking Dante says that the, uh, the the he's got the sodomites and the usurers in the same circle in hell, right? When, right. Because one of them one of them renders something f- that's fruitful fruitless, and the other one renders something sterile fruitful. That's right. So the sodomite takes what is fruitful, namely sexuality, and renders it sterile, 
And the user takes what is sterile, namely money, and renders it so fruitful through compound interest. Yes, Dante is like true north when it comes to understanding the moral law. So now, now, by the way, speaking, so you just invoke the moral law. So one of the problems, I suppose, with the, with the, if, if, if one of these modern, say, Catholic, you, you mentioned Dr. Woods before, one of these modern Catholic defenders of uh, capitalism were to be hearing our conversation up till now, he would be, you know, trying to interrupt us at several points and saying, well, but wait a minute, wait a minute, economics is a science. Economics is a science, and there are market forces, and you don't, you people don't understand those market forces, and that's what we need to actually go by the laws of this science. You're you're talking about teachings of popes who had nothing to do with with the science of economics. But um, as I as I understand it, we have this divorce here between um, economics and ethics, or as you as you call it, moral philosophy. This is one of the problems with capitalism, isn't it? This great divorce right, between ethics right. and and ethics yes, and yes. economics. Tom, Tom was is. Uh, Tom Woods went to Harvard with my oldest son, uh, and uh, Rupert Ederer reviewed his book, Markets and Morality. You can go to culturewars.com and read that review. It, it was devastating. Tom just never recovered from it. You know, he called me up and cried over the phone when after I did it. But uh, I saw him, you know, Tom, uh, look, I, I, I've been doing this since when you were in diapers, and Rupert Ederer has been doing it since I was in diapers. So... <laughs> Take it like a man, Tom. Take take what he said seriously. Well, of course, he ignored what I said, and then he went on to win some ridiculous prize from the the um, the uh, uh, what is one of the Austrian school crowd down in Alabama. They hand out prizes for people who promote their ideology. Von, von Mises uh, Institute. But, but to, to, to get back to the science thing, yes, uh, that is one of the great illusions of the English ideology that somehow they have science on their side, and science tells us what is real and unreal. And how can you argue with science, right? Right. And so what we're dealing with is sleight of hand here, all the time sleight of hand. It began with Isaac Newton, uh, who uh, came up with the inverse square law. Some people have said he stole it from Boyle, but let's leave that aside. Uh, there, the inverse square law is true, okay? And so he superimposes this on a cosmology, which is based on... Empedocles, it's a completely pagan cosmology where the forces in the universe are basically love and strife. And they go around and around. He called it gravity and inertia, but it's basically love and strife. And then, lo and behold, another Englishman by the name of Adam Smith takes this and turns it into an economic system, and he calls it uh, self-interest and competition. Same thing, love and strife. And what you have here when you have these two forces coming together is perfect circular motion. So don't interfere with nature. Who are you? Who are you to interfere with what God has created, right? Well, no, we're talking about not talking about God. We're talking about the interests of the Whig oligarchs who pay your bills here. Okay, that's what we're talking about. And it became in the hands of cruder people simply a justification for capitalism for the exploitation of labor that's what it became over the course of the 19th century there was always some type of scientific justification for the fact that you shouldn't pay this guy a decent wage uh, LaSalle the uh, the uh, German socialist caught on and he called it the iron law of wages and that's precisely what Bishop von Kettler uh, contested 
uh, in his book, uh, Defending the Worker. Mm-hmm. So the, the the Catholic Church always defended the, the 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 right of the workers. I mean, at the same time that Marx is speaking of the the, the plight of the workers, the Catholic Church was defending it in, in the person of Bishop uh, von Kettler. And then later on, we're going to have the popes doing the same thing. So it's not as if the the socialists had a a um, some sort of a, a uh, monopoly, ironic, a, a monopoly on care for the worker. Uh, and it's not. And, and on the other hand, it's not socialist to care for the worker and to to be interested in the the downtrodden who's being taken advantage of by the rich. What, what yeah. I, I often no, you could argue that it's self interest. You cannot have a prosperous economy without widespread high wages. You cannot have it. And high. What do I mean by high? The absolute ground zero objective criterion is the family wage, mm-hmm. which means a man should be able to earn enough money so that his wife can stay home and take care of the children. If you do not have that, you will destroy the labor force in a period of generations. And that is precisely what happened in Florence at the beginning of this whole rise of capitalism. The Medici took over and basically ground the worker. And as a result, Florence, by the end of the 15th century, it was the museum that it is today. They wrecked The cloth industry, which is the basis of all prosperity, all economies, uh, by taking basically beginning with cloth, grinding the worker, cheating them out of a decent wage, destroying the ability of the labor force to renew itself through procreation, and then getting into banking and going right to usury, and then destroying basically, uh, why, why is Florence look that way? Well, because it stopped developing. Mm-hmm. It's a be- it's it's not a beautiful city. I don't think it's a beautiful city. I've been there. It's a city where you had to basically hole up in your house to keep the mob at bay. There were always fights in the streets, uh, and uh, it it produced beautiful art. There's no question about that. The Uffizi is a, a, a tribute to that, but it became a museum because you starved the worker. And so there was no growth anymore. So you, you're, the way that I, what I'm, what I'm getting from you is that the the theoretical underpinnings that these men, uh, these capitalist um, promoters give us frequently, going back to Smith, this stuff is not in, is not as important in your view as the actual net result, which is. It's, in other words, the capitalists are more cynical than this. They don't think in terms of, oh, yeah, we have this perfect philosophical explanation for what it is we do because it, it actually works, and here's why. They're just more interested in making money, right? Yeah, and, and the fact that the sun comes up in the morning doesn't mean you made it come up. So the economy works in spite of capitalism, not because of it, in spite of the burden that usury is placed on it. So let's get back to this, this scientific uh, what the scientific, the idea that economics is science is science. What they're really saying is that economics is physics. That's what Adam Smith said. That's what all these people are saying. It's an idea that wrecked the development of economics for centuries. Mm-hmm. For centuries, uh, a great book on this is More Heat Than Light, uh, which talks about that whole economics is pseudo physics. Economics is not physics. And, but it's if, if, moral philosophy, and it fits at also. The, but at, if it fits at also, the heart, at the heart of the economic, any economic system, the fundamental atom, or let's put it this way, the fundamental molecule 
of the economic system is one man wanting to sell something and one man wanting to buy something. Mm -hmm. That's the exchange. That is a that is a both men are trying to achieve the good here. And in doing the only way you achieve the good is by following the moral law. And so you have to follow the moral law. This is why Adam Smith was a professor of moral philosophy. It was always considered moral philosophy. And thanks to Smith, it became pseudophysics. But basically, it always every whatever economic system you're talking about, it comes down to one man wanting to buy something and one man wanting to sell something. And in any exchange, there's going to be prob the probability that one man is strong and the other man is weak. And in a fallen world, any any strong man will be inclined to take advantage of the weak man. Mm -hmm. And so the simplest and this is true of selling labor, which is why labor needs the sale of labor needs to be protected. Uh, and this is precisely what the hacks like Father Sirico and the whores who take money from the oligarchs and try and peddle it as Catholic teaching at places like the Acton Institute. That's what they want to disguise. Okay. That the strong should not be able to take advantage of the weak and both parties should benefit from this exchange. So to get back to labor here, you're weak when you're a laborer all by yourself. And you just go to the, you know, take your hat in your hand and you stand there and the guy says, I'll pay you 50 cents an hour. And you think, well, that's not much, but I have to feed my family. And so you take the job and you drive wages down. That is why you need unions. OK, to go and put all of the workers together and say, we need to protect labor uh, uh, and uh, you need to deal with all of this. And then so the so, OK, that's fine. And then suddenly the uh, employer says, the hell with you. I'm firing all of you and we're bringing in scabs. And then the great breakthrough in that regard was basically the sit down strike, which took place in Detroit at the I believe it was the Chrysler plant in the 1930s, where the workers would say, OK, you're not going to talk then we're going to sit here and occupy your machinery until you talk to us. Mm -hmm. This this is the type of struggle that has been completely forgotten. It's been completely erased, largely because of the, the, the Reagan-Thatcher era and all of the prostitutes that arose, you know, getting money from the oligarchs to promote this ugly ideology of uh, selfishness that goes by the name of Austrian school economics or libertarianism or Milton Friedman or whatever you want to call it, Chicago school, whatever you want to call it. It triumphed in its day in the 70s, and is, we're suffering now as a result of that. Now, do you, so do you think that the current, uh, if, if perimpossibile, the our current rulers wanted to fix the system and to have something that was actually a just economic system. And they said, okay, we, we, we don't want to have socialism. We don't want to have capitalism. Uh, as, as you just explained it, as, as, user, as both state-sponsored usury and as the systematic appropriation of surplus labor, uh, what is the alternative? The alternative is the family wage. The alternative is investment rather than uh, uh, debt the alternative let's let's get let's get specific right now what needs to happen right now tomorrow all student loans should be forgiven 
Now, oh, well, wait a minute. Who's going to take the hit here? Well, the creditor is going to take the hit. Sorry, fellas. And you know what? They take the hit on a daily basis because bankruptcy is the way that this economy keeps going. Bankruptcy is loan forgiveness for the rich. Uh-huh. Ask Donald Trump. Ask Donald Trump. He knows about it because he went bankrupt three times. And the unfortunate part of that is a lot of times he stiffed, you know, small contractors in New Jersey. But basically, this is what keeps this system alive. This is what keeps capitalism alive. You can't maintain this debt. And so why do you allow it to people like Donald Trump and deny it to students? Well, because he's too big to fail. Yeah, that's what yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, that yeah, simple. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you if you if you borrow if if you owe the bank ten thousand dollars, you're in trouble. If the if you owe the bank ten million dollars, the bank's in trouble. That's the difference. And the only reason these students are not allowed to default on their loans is because the Congress wrote a clause in this bill saying student loans are exempt from bankruptcy proceedings. Well, that's got to change. You did that with a stroke of the pen. Okay, buddy, undo it with the stroke of a pen. Now, okay, so how is that going to fix things? So you, you, you gave you gave that as an example of what needs to be done to fix the system. How does that it, fix things? Debt is strangling the economy. I'm sure there's a 20-year-old out there who wants to buy my book and can't do it because he's got to make a student loan payment. It is strangling the economy. If you want to release that buying power, whatever it is, you have to cancel their debts. And that will free up their money for to buy my book or buy your whatever you're selling. <laughs> okay. Okay. So so then it'll it'll enable their spending power. Right. That's absolutely right. It'll give them hope for God. And, uh, and, in addition to that. And it'll also well, allow them let's, to have let's children. Give, let's give, let me give you one example of why we have a capitalist system here. Okay. Uh, by the way, uh, you maybe didn't notice, but the stock market crashed while everyone was cowering in their homes, afraid to contract the coronavirus. Uh, maybe there's a connection there, but that's not the, our program here. We're talking about something else. <laughs> so Mr. Manukin shows up, and Mr. Manukin is one of the, the big Jews who runs our financial usury system. And he's a generous guy because he's going to give you $1,000. Yeah. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Manukin. Uh, but how much are you going to give to the banking people and, and, and their bad debts? You're going to give them $4 trillion, it looks like. Well, wait a minute. What is this thousand dollars going to do? Well, let's give it, uh, apply it to the real world. If you're a 26 year old and you've got fifty thousand dollars in debt, student loan debt, what are you going to do with a thousand dollars? Buy some marijuana, maybe. <laughs> Subscribe to a premium porn channel. What yeah. are you going? It's pointless. It's completely irrelevant. That, that type of money is completely irrelevant to the economic plight of large numbers of people in this country because the main problem they have is debt. And the main problem destroying this economy is debt. Well, the whole the whole economy is driven by debt. I mean, if you're not if you're not in debt, you're not a righteous and decent citizen of this economy. That's right. So it's like sodomy. You know, the the sodomite is the ideal citizen and the ideal citizen goes into debt. So even if you're not a sodomite, you should act like one. And even if you could earn a living on your wage, go into debt anyway. And then you have the perfect docile wage slave sex robot that the oligarchs love.
Yeah. So if you if you have the if you have this system where you did you you did get rid of the debt, it was no longer a debt driven economy. Um, you would if if for instance if you forgave all the college debts, those those college students and I almost said kids, but most of them aren't kids. Those college students, those college graduates, would be able, in theory, to have families and to raise them and uh, not be you know they'd be able to buy things. They'd be able to to spend the money that they get in their jobs on their families. And in theory, we'd have larger families, uh, larger, th- therefore, work workforce. Um, so that would, li- that would lead to productivity. So who's out on that? Because we're dealing with finite, we're dealing with a finite amount of goods here. Who's the out? Creditor. The creditors. The creditor. And tough luck, fellas, you do it every day of the week. Mm-hmm. It's called a haircut. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh, so the, take the a haircut, fellas, and you're going to take a haircut on student loan. I'll give you a penny on the dollar, which is done, which is done frequently. I mean, on uh, all the time. What do you think bankruptcy courts are are about? Mm-hmm. You bring the creditors in. They say, sorry, you can't get blood out of the stone, fellas. You're going to have to take a haircut. I'll give you ten cents on the dollar. No, we want eleven cents. Well, okay. How about 10, 10, 10 cents and 10.5? You know, this is the way you back and forth, and that's the way you come to an agreement. That's what that's what makes the world go round. Uh-huh. That's why the system didn't freeze up a long time ago. Now, what what would you say to somebody who said, "Well, if you had an if you had an economy like that, you wouldn't have." Uh, the, the 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 bankers there to give people the loans that they need to start new businesses. I've already dealt with this. Do don't use loans to start a business. Sell stock, and that way you'll share the risk. Before the creation of the Fed, this is when um, the um, the emergence of the American industrial powerhouse. The bankers in New York uh, did a study and they found out that the manufacturers in places like Detroit and the Midwest, 90% of their capital expansion was done from profit. No loan. No loan. And the Fed did not, the Fed did not like that. They wanted to get people in to borrow. Look, we'll give you, how much do you have? What do you have? A couple, couple thousand dollars. We'll give you millions. Don't think small, think big. Millions. We'll lend it to you. Well, then you go into debt, and then that's the way they take over your company. Mm. Or, yeah, I mean, yes, yes, that's the short answer to your question. Yes. So, the, so in, in other words, in the system that you're advocating, the fat cats who make money off of money, the, the guys with the copulating shekels, they're, they're the ones who are on the outs. They have to pay. In E. Michael Jones's ideal economy... You would not have the fat cats making money off of money, right? You would ban usury from the economy. You take it step by step by step. I'm not a revolutionary, okay? Uh, You take it step by step and you back these people down and you Mm -hmm. stiff the creditor. The creditors have sucked enough blood out of the economy. They can take the hit. Okay, don't make us all take the hit because of your reckless behavior. This is exactly what Iceland did. And you know what the difference between Iceland and Ireland is? It's one letter in the alphabet. (laughs) But it's also the fact that in Ireland, the stupid Irish uh, allowed the government to bail out the banks 
And in Iceland, uh, when that happened, they said, look, the banker, he lives down that street there. You go get the money from him, but we're not paying for it. We're defaulting on your loan. And at that point, they say, we'll never lend you money again. And they said, that's okay. And within 10 years, they're begging the Icelanders to borrow money from them. Huh. So, so like, think of what Iceland did. Stiff, stiff the creditors. So they didn't, they didn't care pay. about too big to fail. Because in 2008, that's what I think... Too Big to Fail came from 2008, right? Well, it had been around for some time, but I mean, basically, you had Obama making these crooks whole. Their their stock had crashed, gone through the floor, and then the government buys their 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 tarnished assets back at full face value. That's mm -hmm. outrageous. That's an outrageous swindle of the American people. So, well, a lot of this stuff was credit uh, uh, mortgages. Okay, ninja loans. Okay, bad mortgages. Okay, so what what are we going to do? We're going to let the whole economy tank? Well, why don't you give the money to the people? And that way the people can pay back their mortgage and still live in their house. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not capitalism because that it, well, capitalism is there to benefit the user. So what did they do? They made the user a whole and they evicted the people from their homes. And so the user got to sell your house twice. Mm. So, so it, it all goes back to usury. In other words, if you if you if you outlawed usury, which used to be outlawed here, if you outlawed usury, you're talking about um, the the one thing. That, and this is a question. That's the one thing that would restore us to a pre-capitalist economy. First of all, we're not going to go back to a pre-capitalist economy. We're going to move forward. And there is not one thing. There are two things. It's usury and labor. Mm -hmm. You have to favor labor and prevent, prohibit usury. If you put that formula into effect, you will have a prosperous economy. So I tell you what, make me king of America and we'll try it out. <laughs> well, I mean, historically, of course, this has actually worked. I mean, you go into this in your book, right? That's why I did a historical book. Anytime the users get their upper hand, everyone suffers. And what do you have? And, and they, they, so you have this Murray Rothbart, one of the saints of the Austrian school of economics, wrote a book on money. And it's basically the Jewish take on money. And he actually mentions ducats. He actually mentions them. <laughs> and he, he, he's happy when there's deflation, which means when everybody goes out of work and a recession and the value of everything collapses because he says, my ducats swell. Oh my or, God. You know, what you mean is everyone else is miserable because they don't have any money and you can buy up their assets from pennies with pennies on the dollar because you have gold or some type of uh, asset here. Well, that's not uh, a productive economy. That's not a democratic economy. That's not a Christian economy. It's Jewish. Yeah. It helps. It, it's a Shylock economy. And we've had enough of Shylock. I'm up to my eyeballs with Shylock. We need some liberation from Shylock now. So, so those are the, so so then a living wage or a family wage, as you say, and outlawing usury, and the system as we have it now. And I realize you said you're not a radical, you're not a revolutionary. I I, I get it, but you think that the system now would need to be revamped, you know, starting from scratch, that it could be corrected with just laws that enforce those two things. I'm saying if you put those two principles into action, you will have a just economy 
you will have a prosperous economy in a very short period of time. And Detroit wouldn't look, if it got back into producing cars, it wouldn't look like the, the, the train wreck it is now. Yeah, and actually, I did a, uh, the book I did on Detroit was uh, Slaughter of Cities, and that's mainly about the social engineering that took place in Detroit. But uh, the, what happened uh, over this period of time that I described, beginning with Paul Folker taking over the Fed, was basically the era of leverage buyouts and the era of outsourcing. And now, guess what? We're starting to see the downside of outsourcing. Uh-huh. Uh, the coronavirus yes, uh, yes, may be yes. a product of outsourcing. Uh, I have an article on the culturewars.com website, which uh, documents the fact that this Chinese lady was getting grants from the United States government to uh, uh, engineer bat virus and coronavirus. This is General Xi. This is General Xi, the... the yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, I have a friend who's an epidemiologist who's who works for the uh, f- works for the NSA, and he was in a meeting where this was revealed. She was th- this was a this was jointly produced by the U- United States and China. This this thing. Yeah. So this is the ultimate in outsourcing. Yeah. You outsourced your bioweapons program to China, and now hey, it's all over the place. Maybe it's an accident. Maybe it's deliberate. But I mean, it is outsourcing. So it's just one aspect. So I, I knew a guy who was a wealthy guy in Detroit who had basically supplied parts to the uh, automobile industry. Well, once they started outsourcing, you know, you're grinding these people. You go to the guy and say, look, buddy, I can get this for 25 cents uh, in China. And so you're, so you're going to sell it to me for 30 cents where, where you're charging me $2 for it now. Mm. Well, he, he said, I'm out of here. <laughs> he sold he sold out, and now there no nobody's working on that in that plant in in uh, Detroit, and they they got some slave uh, with coronavirus working on it in uh, in China now. Yeah. it was a betrayal a betrayal of the American people of the highest order, and, Ronald, and nobody is holding these people accountable for what they did. Ronald Reagan did this stuff. I mean, Nixon, I guess, first, and then Ronald Reagan started this stuff with China. So he allowed he allowed the vulture capitalists to outsource stuff to communist China. Yes. You're absolutely right. And uh, uh, Fatal Embrace talks about that deal where basically Reagan needed Jewish money to uh, get elected. And so he allowed all of this deregulation and so on and so forth. Leverage buyouts, all that whole crooked operation. Uh, Boski going to jail as a result of it. All that type of stuff that wow. happened in the 80s. Well, Dr. Jones, I'm afraid we've we've, we've run out of time. Uh, but I'm really grateful for you to... to to join me and speak about this. And uh, I think we pretty much answered the question, are there any problems with capitalism? So thank you very much. My pleasure. You've been listening to Reconquest on the Crusade Premium Channel. Uh, by the way, if you want to buy any of Dr. Jones's books, the book, either the book uh, Baron Metal um, or Subscribers Magazine or any of those other books, go to culturewars.com. God bless and Merry Keep you.